So I am uh, something of a word nerd. Um, I, uh, I love learning about the history and backgrounds of where words come from. Why do they exist? Why do we use them the way that we do? And uh, there's a word, a lot of words in, in Christianity, especially in, in church world. They're churchy words that, I mean, we know what they mean, kind of, but we're not really sure why we use them, perhaps. Um, one of those words is liturgy. It may be a word that is newer to you uh, because maybe you've not been in a church that has a lot of liturgy as a part of it. Uh, liturgy is that uh, those elements of worship that we invite participation from the congregation. So here at AUMC, for instance, it's a call to worship, it's uh, singing hymns, it's uh, the calls and responses during baptism or communion, it's um, uh, the Lord's Prayer that we recite together. Um, and that word liturgy it doesn't literally mean like stuff you say in church. Um, it, it comes from the Greek language, like so much of our language in church world does. It comes from these two Greek words, in fact, letos and ergos. Letos meaning public and ergos meaning work, the public work or the working in public. And for a long time, uh, it was thought that, that liturgy was sort of the, the work of the people. That's how we understood what that word means, the work of the people, the work that we do together in worship. But maybe there's another way to understand that word. If we go back and we look at how the word liturgy was used um, in the uh, context and culture of the early Christian movement, um, there was actually such a concept as, as liturgy in the general culture and community, and it was not anything to do with churches. It was um, public service, public works that were performed by the very wealthy as a way of, sure, benefiting their community, but also to maintain their social standing, right? Um, it's uh, how you ended up with uh, the bridge named after your family, right? Or, or that, that road, my uncle paved that road, right? Um, you got to put your name on it or the generosity doesn't count. And um, uh, that's what liturgy kind of was, was these public works, these, these public services performed by generous people. But over time, these liturgies became burdensome and uh, the wealthy in the communities would, would avoid it at all costs um, because they didn't want to be on the hook for all of the public infrastructure in their, in their towns. And uh, at some point, the Christian church, as we do, sort of adapts and adopts uh, this general cultural language, and liturgy became the language that we used for the work taking place in worship and beyond it. And what's interesting is that scholars today think that maybe the original intention was not to say this is the, the work of the people, but rather to say this is the work of God that the people get to share in, that God is this generous uh, benefactor uh, that is doing good in and amongst us, and now we get to co-participate in that. Maybe that's why the word liturgy was used. I bring all that up to say um, uh, today is World Communion Sunday, and um, it's one of those um, rituals and sacraments that ties together a diverse collection of denominations throughout the world. Starting in 1936, World Communion Day has been recognized as this sort of ecumenical, this um, reaching beyond the boundaries and borders of denominational affiliation, a time that we all gather around a common table and partake in the sacrament of communion. 
Communion, of course, uh, is that practice that comes out of uh, the Gospels where uh, Jesus is engaging in what we call the Last Supper. It's that Passover meal before he knows he's about to be taken and crucified. And um, that has become the ritual for us uh, over 2,000 years. Um, we've maintained that practice of, of participating in the Last Supper in that way. And if you're like me, um, sometimes when you're in church, you stop listening. Um, your eyes can glaze over, uh, especially if you've heard words over and over and over again. Um, is that just me? Um, I don't think it is. Um, sometimes rituals kind of lose their meaning, or maybe they never had them to begin with. And so, I actually today would like to walk through um, the liturgy of communion in the United Methodist Church, because I know there are some people uh, in this space and online who uh, were born United Methodists and will die United Methodists. And, and there are some people who have never been in a liturgical church until this very moment. Um, and my hope and my, my instinct is that all of us have new ways that we could understand this thing that we come back to on the first Sunday of every month as God intended. And um, that's a Methodist joke. Um, <laughs> and that maybe there's some richness and some depth here that, that this liturgy could live into its word and, and not just be the work that we do while we're in here for an hour on Sunday morning, but could actually help be a, a guiding light for us in the work that we make our lives about. So the question today is, how might the liturgy of communion shape the work of our lives? So I'm going to talk about communion in sort of the, the basic movements of our liturgy. And we start with the invitation. You may hear words like this in a church like AUMC. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. That's the invitation that we offer in the United Methodist Church as a standard practice. And, and I want you to notice a couple words there. Christ our Lord invites to his table all. So in the UMC, we, we are one of the denominations that practices what we call open table communion. And that might be new to you, or maybe it's a reason why you're at a Methodist church. Um, this is one of the parts of our theology that I'm most proud of. One of the reasons why I'm still a Methodist is we believe that anybody, anybody uh, is welcome to receive communion, regardless of membership status. In fact, you don't have to be baptized. I received communion before I was baptized. We're going to have a, a, a boy this morning who's going to be baptized, and he's received communion dozens of times, and he's just now about to be baptized. Uh, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, believed that communion could actually be the place where someone comes to faith that they could encounter the grace of God in such a meaningful and real way at the table of Christ that they would come to faith in God, whereas before they didn't have that sense of, of personal faith. And so as Methodists, we are committed to this invitation that's really not ours to extend. As we say in the beginning, Christ our Lord invites to his table. This isn't my table, and it's not your table. It's Christ's table, and all people are welcome to this table. This is the holiday season. Um, I don't know if you love the holiday season, if you dread it. I love it. Um, I love holiday traditions. Earlier during Children's Moment, I asked them what today was in the life of the church, and one of our kids said, it's Halloween season. And I said, yes, you're right. It's spooky season. Let's go. I love it all. I love Thanksgiving. I love football. I love Christmas. I love it all. 
One thing I love is one of the rituals in our house is we've got a dining table that can extend and you place a leaf in it to make it bigger. Anybody else's table like that? And I'll be honest, there are some times when the leaf never comes out because we're just simply too lazy and it becomes the catch-all storage table. Are we the only ones that treat the dining room as a storage unit? Um, so uh, I always love, though, that moment of, of stretching out the table and placing the leaf because I know it's coming. In the coming weeks and months, there's going to be the need for more chairs around that table. And I just, in the words of Brandy Carlisle, I love a crowded table. That's, that is what I live for. Um, and I like to think of the Lord's table as that table that can always expand to have one more leaf and always expand to have one or two more chairs. And the reason why I'm so glad it's not my table and it's not your table is because if it was my table, my invitation not might make it all the way to you. Because if I'm being honest, maybe I don't want you at my table. And maybe you don't want me at yours. And thank God it doesn't belong to us, right? Thank God the invitation doesn't come from any single one of us, but rather it's Christ who says, yeah, come on in. We're going to put another leaf in to this table. There is always room for one more. And so, my friends, it's not my table and it's not your table, and that's a very good thing. I think stepping into the world with a liturgy that says, I sit at the table that doesn't belong to me, and I invite people to a table that is not my own, um, that's a good way to approach life, I believe. So then we move from invitation to confession. That's a word that could have some baggage with it, especially depending on the tradition you come out of. But confession is an important part of our, um, of our work together as the people of God. And, and here's why I believe that. Because it's one thing to acknowledge that we're not perfect. I think most everyone in this room would say we're not perfect. And if you would not say that, then we've got some therapists I'd love to refer you to. Um, it's easy to say that generally. It's harder to get honest about where we come up short and the ways in which we hurt people, and the ways in which we choose to live unfaithfully to one another and to God. I think corporate confession, especially in the church, especially in the Christian church, that it sometimes can struggle with arrogance, am I wrong? Um, to humble ourselves and say we don't, in fact, have all the answers. We don't, in fact, get it right all the time. In fact, sometimes we do more harm than good, and we need to be real about that. It's really hard to move forward into health and to step into whatever God is preparing for us until we can be honest about the ways in which um, we are causing harm to ourselves, to each other, and to the world. Confession gives us a space to breathe and to say these things out loud. We do this as individuals in silence. We do this as a people together through spoken words. And as a church that feels committed to justice, I think confession is important, um, especially on this uh, World Communion Sunday, when many churches around the world will, rather than quoting scriptures around the Last Supper, may choose to quote scriptures around the Great Commission, right? And if you know what that is, that's the moment before Jesus ascends into heaven and says, Here, here's your job, basically. Go into every corner of the world. Jesus was a flat earther. And <laughs> baptize everybody. If you don't know me, that was a joke, I promise. You're like, honey, go start the car. This is one of those churches, oh no. Um, <laughs> they really buried that lead on the website. Um, go into every corner of the world and, and, and baptize everybody in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And... 
Lord, do we have a complicated relationship with that text as the Christian faith. Because the way we have interpreted that and lived into that, on the one hand, allows us to celebrate world communion in the way that we do. Christianity is celebrated as a faith throughout the world. And we also know that the fullness of that story is not an always beautiful one. That I'm not trying to disparage missionaries. I know that we have folks who have missionaries, are missionaries or have missionaries in their families. But I think we can be honest and say that our effort to evangelize has not always been the most healing thing. In fact, frequently our efforts to bring a version of Christianity into the larger world has brought with it harm, has brought with it at times disease, has brought with it at times even evil and death. And that might be hard to sit with or might be hard to name and acknowledge, but it is the truth. And part of confession is acknowledging the truth. And so I wonder, as we celebrate world communion and as we seek to be a truly global church, stepping into the world with all humility, knowing that while we may hold a version of the gospel in our own hearts, we certainly don't hold the entirety of it, and we definitely do not hold God to ourselves. And so stepping into the world with not just an ounce, but a heaping helping of humility that says, I know I'm not perfect. In fact, I am brave enough to even articulate some specific ways. That, I believe, is a church that is ready to step into a world to be about justice because at first we've been about confession. The good news in, in our theology, in our liturgy, is that immediately after confession, there is a moment of pardon. And pardon can sound a lot of different ways, but essentially it can sound like this, that knowing full well that we are imperfect people, knowing full well that we've got bumps and bruises and that we can hurt and harm, knowing full well that we are works in progress, God still came and lived and died and rose again for each and every one of us to set us free because that's how much God loves us unconditionally. And then, here's the really great part, is that the pastor will say to the people in the UMC, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And then the really great part is the people take that authority upon themselves and say to one another and to the pastor, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. That's a powerful statement. That's part of our liturgy that I love the very most because it communicates that, number one, it's not my job to forgive you, and I'm not a mediator between you and God. That's what, I don't get paid enough to do that. I'll be honest, friends. Um, but secondly, I love the message that that gives, that, that we hold this power ourselves to be about the reconciliation and forgiveness of God in the world. Now, a lot of churches, the communion liturgy will kind of stop there. Maybe you come out of a tradition where communion ultimately was about getting around a table and remembering that Jesus loves us and that even though we're kind of awful, uh, we're forgiven, and so now have some bread and juice and go home, right? Maybe that's the tradition that, that you've experienced before. But in the United Methodist liturgy, we're like not even halfway through at that point. And I bring that up to say this. Theologically, that communicates something. Because in a lot of Christian traditions, there's this emphasis on what we are saved from, right? Uh, maybe you've been approached by someone who handed you a pamphlet that asked a very helpful question of, if you die tomorrow, where would you go? And I'm like, I haven't made cremation plans yet. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> That can be an emphasis in a lot of Christian churches, and United Methodists, along with so many in the Christian ecosystem, really are more serious about the question, not of what we're saved from, but what we're saved for. That the, the whole point of being invited and, 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 and confessing and receiving pardon is not to simply sit and go, whew, I'm glad I'm not burning, right? But rather to consider, what is God leading me into? 
What is the good work that my life can now be about? What have I been freed for so I can commit my life to the kinds of things that increase goodness and justice and mercy and all the stuff that we say is good and is bigger than just us? And that's what God leads us into next. That's what our liturgy leads us into. The grace of the table is a product of pardon. It doesn't stop there, but it keeps going. Then there's this larger portion called the great thanksgiving. It sounds like this. You always know it because in United Methodist churches, we start by saying, the Lord be with you. Oh, good job. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks and praise. Yeah, I messed that up, but y'all did it right. Y'all are better than I am. My brain's tired. Um, I had to get the pumpkin spice latte with an extra shot this morning. So the, the, the great Thanksgiving, it, it goes through this, and, and this is where a lot of times our liturgy gets the most creative. You'll hear different words, different Sundays perhaps, but the, the general movement is this, that first we're acknowledging the work that God has been about, the work that God has done in the world. We're remembering the great cloud of witnesses and the communion of saints, and we're joining in their song, the song that's been sung for eons. And, and, and then there's this pivot as we shift and turn our attention to retelling that Last Supper story. And we talk about when Jesus was with his disciples and he blessed the bread and he broke the bread and then he blessed the cup and he shared the cup and and we're remembering what happened in that moment. But it's not just a historical moment, it's actually the moment we're being invited into. We're, We're suddenly at the Last Supper table with Jesus in that moment. And then we turn our attention to what hasn't even happened yet. And we talk about how, you know, God, we want this this moment to to make us into something more than ourselves. We want you to turn us into the very, you know, bread and juice, extend the table through us, allow us to be the grace that is poured out into the world, and then we sum it up with what's called the mystery of faith. And we say Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And it's beautiful because it sums up what that great Thanksgiving portion really is trying to communicate, is that God is supremely present in our past in our present, and in our unseen future. And every time we we say that mystery of faith, and especially this week, it causes me to stop and reflect about how incredible it is, and it makes me feel small, and it also makes me feel seen to know that God was in my past and was at work in ways that I didn't fully understand, and that God is in my present even when I feel lonely, even when I feel confused, or, or even when I feel angry, and yet God is also in my future when I am afraid and when I'm anxious and when I just don't even know what's coming up and how to even feel about it, that, that God is present in all of that at the same time, and not just with me, but with everyone around this world. God is supremely present. It makes me feel small, but it also makes me feel seen. And ultimately what it is, is it's grounding for me. I don't know about you, but sometimes my Tuesday can feel like it's going to be the end of me. Am I the only one that can feel that way? Am I the only one that has felt that way like already today? That like this Sunday morning might be the end of me, right? And in that moment to remember Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Okay, God is so supremely present. God was in the mess when I didn't see God. God is with me in the storm now and God is in the unseen future that I can't even comprehend. And not just with me, but with everyone else too. It's gonna be okay. 
There's something supremely grounding about remembering. And so maybe, maybe this week the work for you is to just invite a breath prayer of Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And to allow that liturgy to ground you in a way that allows you to step with more confidence, with more clarity, with more strength. Because it's not just about you. And it's not just about me. But God is in it all. And somehow that makes my heart rate drop. And that makes my blood pressure come down to more healthy levels. In fact, let's all just take a breath right now. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. How might it ground us to see God as supremely present in our lives? But it's not just about us. Because the way we close communion is then we enter into a time of prayer and the pastor will invoke and invite the Holy Spirit to bless the elements before us, the bread and the juice. And even though you might hear us say something like, make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, we don't believe in transubstantiation. And I mean, no disrespect to any Catholics in the room, but that's just not what we believe. Um, be, yeah, I'm just gonna leave that there. Um, so go on YouTube and I, I'm not gonna go start ad-libbing on transubstantiation. Um, um, but what we do believe is the Holy Spirit is making this something more than uh, a tea party in Jesus's honor, right? That this is more than just bread and juice. This is something special, something different, something that God willing could actually change us if we let it. And so what we really are asking the Holy Spirit to do is to unify us in the way that the table draws all of us from our various paths and journeys and places to one place. We're asking the Holy Spirit to take our hearts and our spirits and bind them together in a common mission and a common love. You'll hear someone like me say, make us one in Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world. That's a big ask. I don't know if you're like me. I don't feel that sense of unity in many places these days. I did yesterday in two places. I, I felt it first in our pumpkin patch because, of course, that's a sacred space. Um, it's the first thing I heard about this church when I was first coming here. You know, that's the pumpkin church. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of churches have pumpkin churches. Whoa, we are the pumpkin church, y'all. I had no idea. I dare say it's the best pumpkin patch north of the, the Arboretum. So, um, like, we're on blogs and stuff. We're real fancy. So, um, but in addition to having a good-looking patch, it, the reason why I think we care so much about it is because we know the good that it does. It's about mission. You know, that patch brings in uh, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars, and it benefits the Navajo farmers. It means money in their pockets and, and money for their economy, and it also means money for our mission fund. 100% of that goes to nonprofits in our community and beyond that we believe are doing kingdom work. Last year, we raised over $20,000 for the mission fund, selling pumpkins. Now, my friends, they're pricey pumpkins, but they're for a good cause. I'm just saying, you might bring your plastic, all right? If you just bring a few ones, you're not, you, you, we got little ones for you. You can have one of the little ones, otherwise be ready to give. Um, yesterday we were on the patch and because we know what it means and because our church is energized and excited to see that work happen, you know, we had, Jeez, dozens of volunteers here that got a semi-truck of pumpkins unloaded in an hour. 
It's amazing what the people of God can do when you are unified in a common mission. What's our mission today? We are moving these pumpkins from here to there. We got it done. Yes. And then I left the pumpkin patch and I went to the Plano Pride uh, Festival uh, gathering party. Um, my kids loved it. My four-year-old Jude is a sticker fiend. He walked out of there, I kid you not, with 187 stickers. He, it was the best party he had ever been to in his life. Um, I, w I walked in there, I was struck by a couple things. Number one, as a kid who grew up in DFW, if you'd asked me 10 or 15 years ago if Plano would ever have a pride festival, festival I would have laughed at you. If you grew up in DFW, you know what I mean. Um, it was beautiful to see that taking place in, in my community. That's where I live. It was beautiful to see, uh, you know, a, a park full of people with rainbows everywhere and smiles on their faces and just that simple message of you are beautiful and you are beloved being communicated. It was awesome to see a team from Arapahoe show up and represent with their own booth. And so I want to thank Kathy and, and Michael for helping to set that up and the volunteers who staffed that booth. That was awesome to see Synergy Wesley there too. And it was great to not be the only church. Right? I love our church, but I don't want to be the only church. Um, that was awesome to see. It was also awesome that they played Share, you, uh, Do You Believe in Life After Love? Because that's my jam. Um, <laughs> it came on and Jude goes. <laughs> I was like, yeah, Jude, let's go. Yes, that is my jam. Um, when people get united around a common vision, a common mission, beautiful things can happen in unexpected ways and unexpected places. I saw the Holy Spirit alive and at work in a pumpkin patch and in a pride event yesterday. And then our communion liturgy ends with one last invitation, the invitation to leave. <laughs> like a good party host, we are politely asked to exit at the end of <laughs> communion because we say, hey, this is just a taste and we're getting ready for the, for the feast everlasting with Christ one day. And, and it doesn't stop here we go out into our homes, into our streets, into our workplaces, into every corner of the earth, and we get to take a leaf of the table with us and to set a place for someone else and to say, you are welcome here. So we're sent. Communion is not just something that draws us in. It sends us out with the peace and the blessing and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here's where I want us to land today, my friends, is this is not simply a time to remember, and it's not simply a time to repeat ritualistic words, but it's a time to allow our lives to be centered and grounded around a common liturgy, a common work that God is already doing, and we are lucky enough to get to participate in. And God is doing it here, and God is doing it beyond this place, and in places that we couldn't even fathom or imagine. And our job when we leave is not to take God to places that God is not, but, we're, but rather to take this message and go discover where God already is, and then to get to work. If that's the kind of meal that you would like to have this morning, not just as AUMC, but as the people of God throughout the world, then I invite you into this time of communion.